So I've never been much of a dominant athlete. Looking at me now, you may say, well, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> as a kid, I was active, but I was never much of an athlete, especially compared to my younger brother, Austin. So by the time we were like four and six years old, he could already beat me in a foot race. And after a while, I re- realized that he wasn't just getting lucky. Like he was actually more athletic than me. And when that fact landed on me that my baby brother was already faster than me, it really bummed me out. I remember one day, um, my brother beat me in a race and I just ran inside crying. And my parents could see that I was sad and embarrassed and and my mom uh, comforted me and my dad uh, also comforted me, but by reading me a story, one that you've probably heard before, it said, one day a hare was making fun of a tortoise for being slow. Do you ever get anywhere, he asked with a mocking laugh. Yes, replied the tortoise, and I get there sooner than you think. I'll race you and prove it. The hare was much amused at the idea of running a race with a tortoise, but for the fun of the thing, he agreed. So the fox who had consented to act as judge marked the distance off and started the runners. The hare was soon far out of sight, and to make it worse and embarrass the tortoise, he lay down beside the course to take a nap until the tortoise should catch up. The tortoise, meanwhile, kept going, and after a time, he passed the place where the hare was sleeping. But the hare slept on peacefully, and when at last he did wake up, the tortoise was near the goal. And now the hare ran his swiftest, but he could not overtake the tortoise in time. The race is not always for the swift. You know this part. Slow and steady wins the race. Now, I'll admit, I didn't much appreciate being compared to a turtle, But I was comforted by the moral of the story, right? So you don't have to be the fastest to win. You just have to be persistent. So why mention that this morning? Well, number one, because a number of years ago, one of my seminary profs, Dr. Kreider, taught from this passage, and he also began with the tortoise and the hare. And that helped me understand this passage in a way that I'd never considered it before. And his message spoke to me, and, and for that reason, this passage has been on my mind for years But the second reason I bring it up here today is because I'm betting that this story, the tortoise in the hare, resonates with you. But not just with you, but with our entire culture. So the idea that through perseverance and hard work, you can do anything, that's woven deeply into our society. So if I get up early enough, if I work hard enough, if I keep my head down, my nose to the grindstone, and pull myself up by my bootstraps, I can do anything. Time committed... Trump's natural talent. Don't be cocky. Just be consistent. So think about the movies that we watch or the sports stories that we enjoy. Or what about the Olympics? I mean, we all love to see those incredible athletes with their incredible natural abilities. But you know what we really love to see? The underdog. The hard worker. And when they win, you know they're going to show that to us on TV because those are the stories we want to see. So the tortoise and the hare is a story that's usually attributed to a slave and master storyteller in ancient Greece named Aesop. And like many of his short stories or fables, this one features symbolism and personified animals, and it's intended to teach children morality and wise living. And as a good storyteller does, Aesop sets you up to experience the story from the perspective that he wants you to take. So many of us identify with the tortoise. We're keenly aware of our own shortcomings and of the advantages of others. So we identify with him. And then when he wins, we rejoice because we feel vindicated. 
So you know that this summer we've been looking at a series of stories that highlight the love and grace of God for the stranger and for the outcast. But today's passage is a bit different. Now it does include a message of hope for the outsider, but in it Jesus also issues a stern warning, a warning for the insider. And church, I think it's a warning that we desperately need to hear. Our passage this morning is from Jesus, and it's found in Matthew chapter 20, and it comes in the form of a parable. And interestingly, Jesus' parable is like Aesop's fable in at least three ways. Number one, it's made up. A parable comes from Jesus' mind. It includes a shocking twist, and it's intended to teach us a deeper truth. And yet, the parable is different in many ways, but at least in one key way. The deeper truth that Jesus is getting at is not to teach us about morality. He's not teaching us about how we ought to act. Instead, he's teaching us about how God acts towards us. So this is a story about insiders and outsiders. It's a story about God's grace. So let's begin by reading the entire thing together. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give to you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around him. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Would you pray with me before we jump into the passage? Father in heaven, would you speak to us this morning from your word? God, would you speak to me as well? Would you speak through me? I pray, God, that my words would be helpful, um, and most of all, that they would be glorifying to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we know that the parables are a key part of Jesus' ministry. These were the primary way that he communicated God's heart and he illustrated God's priorities. And here Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God with a scene that would have been very familiar to his audience in the first century. So verse 1 begins with a landowner who finds himself in need of workers to work his vineyard. And Jesus doesn't say this explicitly, but he probably intends for us to understand that this is taking place during the time of the harvest. And we know this because the landowner would have already had family or, or, or hired workers or, or even slaves to work the, the land year-round. But on this day, he needed additional help from some day laborers. 
So in the first century, a day laborer was an individual who didn't have steady employment. No food stamps or unemployment checks then. So in order to work, to have money to feed yourself and your family, you would go to the market where landowners would come and they would hire extra hands, especially at the time of the harvest. And that's exactly what this wealthy landowner is doing. He goes into the market and he finds laborers there and he says, hey, come with me today, work for me, and I'll pay you a denarius. Now, a denarius is a day's wage. These guys are being hired to work for a day. It makes sense that they would get paid for a day's work. So to be a day laborer in the first century was also to be extremely vulnerable. No laws or social programs to protect those without a steady job in ancient Israel. As a day laborer in an ancient culture, you were completely at the mercy of others. Interestingly, even slaves had greater status and protection. So as a day laborer, you depended entirely on those who hired you to pay you fairly in order to eat and live. And honestly, it wasn't uncommon for day laborers to be tricked into working for free by dishonest landowners. So it's interesting, when he was giving his people laws that would govern their new society in the promised land, God strictly forbade landowners from taking advantage of day, of, of day laborers. And this is really significant because what we call the law in scriptures, even though it's really long and exhaustive, really isn't enough to govern an entire culture. In other words, the law didn't give God's people every little rule and regulation that they would need to create a flourishing society. So what's included in scripture is intended to illustrate God's heart. So this is why you would need scribes and teachers of the law. So they would know what was in the law and they would apply it to all the unique situations among the people. However, the fair treatment of day laborers was so important to God when he founded his people that he made sure they didn't miss it. So in Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, 24, verses 14 through 15, it says this. You shall not... Oppress a hired servant who is needy and poor. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he's poor and he sets his heart on it. So, our God is a God who cares about the vulnerable and the outcast. So, he commanded his people to treat them with fairness and dignity. Among the laws that he gave, he made sure to give them this one. So, by including this detail, Jesus is actually telling us a lot about the landowner in his story. He's telling us that he's fair. He's not going to take advantage of the, of the workers. And yet, at this point, the landowner isn't done hiring. So the first set of workers were hired at daybreak or the first hour, which would have been around 6 o'clock in the morning. But then we see the, labor, the owner go out again at the third hour, 9 a.m., the sixth hour, noon, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., and then finally at the eleventh hour or 5 p.m. Now, when he goes to these workers, he doesn't draw up a contract to work for a day's wages since none of them were going to work for a full day. Instead, what does he say? Look in verse 4. He says, whatever is right, I will give you. And as the listener, this is exactly what we'd expect to hear at this point. The landowner continues to treat his laborers with dignity and fairness. And just as the law commands, the owner distributes the wages at the end of the day. Look back at verse 8. It says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Now, at this point in the story, 
Jesus' listeners would have fallen out of their chairs because this is shocking, right? So in case you missed it, the owner begins by paying the workers hired last, those who'd worked for only one hour. And how much did he pay them? A denarius, a full day's wages. Now, to keep saying the word denarius over and over again isn't particularly helpful because that's kind of obscure to us. So let's put some real numbers to it. I know that some high schoolers in this room have gotten summer jobs uh, to make some money. Um, Many of you have probably started in a position that pays near or at minimum wage, which is a little more than $7 an hour. Let's imagine, however, that you've got a sweet gig that pays like $10 an hour. So these guys that work for one hour deserve to get paid $10. But when the foreman passes out their envelopes, they find not $10, but $120. That's mind-boggling. And more than mind-boggling, it's absurd. Just think about that for a moment. Imagine word of this gets around town. That manager of this vineyard will pay a full day's wages whether or not you work for a full day. So do you think that anybody would ever show up to do a full day's work for this guy? No, of course not. I wouldn't. I would sleep in, watch TV, and then work for an hour, collect my 120, and then go back home. See, this doesn't make any economic sense. So this guy is fair and generous, but apparently he's also a fool. What kind of business owner would do that? It doesn't make any economic sense. And actually, I think that's kind of the point that Jesus is making. The story doesn't make economic sense because it's actually not a story about good business. It's a story about God's grace. So Jesus is doing something very interesting here in this story. He's teaching about God's abundant and extravagant grace, but in a way that's unexpected. Verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked for only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. So look, Jesus, he clearly wants us to grasp God's extraordinary grace. A God who gives generously, especially to people who don't deserve it. But if he wanted this to be our primary takeaway, then I think he's telling the story in a strange order. Did you notice what order the landowner paid the workers in? He began with those who went into the field last. And that creates a problem. Those who went into the field first are there watching as the others are paid a full day's wage. And as those early workers are seeing the others get paid a full day's wage, they start to get excited. They think they're going to receive a higher wage. But when they don't, they're disappointed. And that's how the parable ends. Do you see how strange that is? Like, why tell the story in this way? So actually, let's imagine if he told the story in reverse order, right? So the workers who went into the field first received their day's wages, which is what you would expect a fair owner to pay. And then you move on to those who work from the third hour, and we would expect them to receive only a portion of what the first group received. But when they also receive a full day's wage, we're surprised at the generosity of the owner. And as each successive group receives the same wage, we're increasingly struck at the abundant kindness of the owner until we get to that final group, those who worked for one hour. 
And as the audience, we're thinking, there's no way. There's no way they're going to get paid a full day's wage. They've barely broken a sweat. But then Jesus would say, and those who went in the field at the 11th hour, the owner also gave them a denarius and sent them away. And we would be totally blown away. So telling the parable in this way, I think, builds anticipation and expectation until the end when we're left marveling at the abundant generosity of the owner. And we understand that Jesus is telling us a story about a God who gives graciously and abundantly, especially to those who don't deserve it. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, the story ends on a sour note with the early workers complaining about what they'd received. It's strange. Like, why do it this way, Jesus? I, I think my way is better, don't you? No, of course not. But why? Well, I think Jesus is doing this intentionally. He's setting up a confrontation. And in the parable, it's a confrontation between the early workers and the landowner. But we understand that Jesus is speaking of a confrontation between the hearts of some insiders and the heart of God. So the workers who worked for the whole day complained against the owner. Not only were they upset because they had started to expect to receive more themselves, but they were, expect, they were upset to find those short timers received a payment equal to their own. So they accused him of being unfair. And here's how the owner responds. Verse 13, he says, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? So when the owner calls the worker friend in verse 13, it's not an endearing term. It's a term used to create separation in a conversation. So in other words, it's like the owner is saying to, to the worker, look, pal. So, so clearly the owner's taking offense at the accusation. He's been accused of being unfair. And he's also rebuking the workers for the way they despised his kindness to others. So let's step back for a moment and consider this parable in its context. The, the parable of the day labor is set up, is set up by two conversations. So in the previous chapter, we have a wealthy young man that comes to Jesus saying, hey, what can I do to receive eternal life? And you know what Jesus says? He says, keep the commandments. And the young, the young man responds saying, did that, what else am I missing? And Jesus says, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me. And you know the story. The man went away because he cared more about his stuff than about obedience to Jesus. So in the context of the story, I'm wondering, like, why would Jesus say that in order to receive eternal life, we have to be perfect? Is salvation for sale? Like, can we work for it? Well, no, of course not. We know that salvation is by grace. We can't earn it. So the question is then, why was Jesus commanding him to sell his possessions in order to receive eternal life? Well, Jesus was showing the man that he had overestimated his own obedience. See, if he truly kept the commandments, particularly the one about loving his neighbor, he would have had no problem obeying Jesus' command. But because he loved his stuff more than his neighbor, he couldn't. So then upon hearing this discussion, the apostle Peter speak up saying, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will be there for us? 
So in other words, Peter is thinking, oh, I get it. God is looking to reward people who are willing to give up their stuff. Jesus, we gave up everything. We give up everything to follow you. So what are you going to give us? What do we get out of the deal, Jesus? And this parable in Matthew chapter 20 is how Jesus responds to Peter. It's as if Jesus is saying, what do you mean, what do you get? Peter, you've missed the point entirely. So to those of us who we've grown up in the church, this term grace is a good word. We like it. As sinners who've rebelled against God, we're not worthy of God's favor, but he gives it to us anyways. And as a concept, grace is a beautiful thing. But when we see it play out in real life, we often find it less than beautiful. Actually, I think there's something about the way that God's grace functions in the real world that we often find ugly and offensive. Jesus knows this. He knows there's a tendency in our hearts, in the heart of the insider, to be put off by God's grace. And rather than downplay something about God that we find repulsive, Jesus leans into it with this story. He's telling this story to shine a light on this conflict, to confront our expectations and assumptions, and to issue a warning to outsiders, or insiders. So church, I asked Pastor Jason if I could teach this passage today because I think that many of you need to hear this warning. But I know that I need to. I am genuinely so convicted by this passage. Because see, I think I, think I understand the gospel intellectually. I know that my salvation is by grace. I know that I didn't earn God's affection. That was earned for me by Jesus. He did that, I didn't. But I struggle to believe it. I struggle to believe it in my heart and to prove it by my actions. So there's a monster inside of me that desperately wants to believe that I deserve what I've received. And I've been trained by the world to expect a reward for hard work. So there's a part of me that says, God, you owe me. Look at how hard I've worked. Look at what I've sacrificed. Look at what I've given up to serve you. So when is it my turn? When do I get what I deserve? God, what are you going to give to me? And church, that's ugly. That arrogant, ungrateful, Entitled heart is a struggle that I'm not proud to share with you. It might sound humble coming from a stage, but it's, it's not in real life. And it is a genuine struggle, by the way. I'm not, I'm not pretending. This is a frequent confession that I share with close friends and mentors. But I share that with you because I believe I'm not alone today. I think that many of us think that God owes us something. We think that because of our obedience, because of our sacrifice, God must do certain things for us. And church, that's cancer. It's deadly. And it can destroy our witness in the world among outsiders that God is trying to call into his family. So as insiders, we need to examine ourselves. We need to diagnose this disease so that we can get serious about the treatment. So how do you know if you have the disease? How do you know if you're suffering from a prideful heart? Well, 
Let me quickly give you three symptoms. As we move along, you'll see that these are often related and progressive. Number one is a judgmental heart that's quick to condemn. So this is something that perhaps many of us wouldn't readily admit to. But I would imagine that many of us have quietly, or maybe not so quietly, passed judgment on others already this morning. How many of us have walked into church today and looked around and thought, what is he doing here? Or into your Sunday study and whispered, I'm surprised that they're here. I heard their marriage was falling apart. Or we've walked past someone in the mall thinking, did you see what she was wearing? Or we're at a school function and we say, you know what, let's go sit over here. I don't want our kids to sit by theirs. And this is more than making innocent observations about those around us. This is a kind of attitude of the heart that says, look at you and look at me. I'm better than you. Symptom number two is often related to number one. So that prideful heart judges the people around us since they're inferior compared to us. But then we begin to notice how well things are going for them. So that guy received a promotion and you didn't. That girl made the team and you didn't. Their kids got scholarships and yours didn't. Now suddenly we're not just judging those around us, we've become jealous of them. So compared to us, they're a mess but somehow they're getting blessed in ways that we haven't. And the final symptom is perhaps the most tragic. So that sickness of pride manifests itself in a judgmental heart. That judgmental heart leads to a jealous heart. And finally, number three, it leads to a heart that makes justification for sin. So as that judgment and jealousy builds in our heart, it becomes bitterness. And then the very grace that we were once in awe of, it looks small. The grace of a God who loves so much that he bled and died for us, looks like no big deal. So we begin to think, why am I following God anyway? What has he ever done for me for my effort? What's the point of this obedience if I can disobey or just go through the motions and still receive the blessing? And so we begin to make excuses for sin. And church, if you, like me, are, are prone to this disease of comparative pride, then we desperately need to hear the words of Jesus. The only cure for this disease is to have Jesus reset our entire system. Because you see, unlike Aesop, Jesus is doing more than manipulating our minds through a plot twist. He's trying to turn our worlds upside down. Because here, this church, the difference between rejoicing about God's grace and rejecting it, it's your perspective. So let's consider this passage again and pay attention to the details. The details make all the difference. So Jesus, as a master storyteller, constructs this story to lure us in to identify with the early workers. Many of us here identify with that group that got there first. And he knows that we like to think of ourselves as the good workers, as the responsible ones, as the ones who deserve what we receive. 
And in the human economy, that works okay. So to be motivated to work hard to receive a greater payment is a fundamental, foundational premise of our economic system. I get that. But church, we don't relate to God in the same way that we relate to other humans. The kingdom of God is not a meritocracy. God doesn't owe us. We've got to remember that we're indebted to him. And this is where it gets crazy because even, listen, even in the story, the workers that showed up first, they were also indebted to the master. So why? Remember what they were. They were day laborers. If it wasn't for the master, they would have been lost without pay and without a purpose. It was the master who sought them out to give them work to do. How crazy is it that they're now complaining to him? If it wasn't for him, they'd still be on the street. So sure, those men, they did a full day's work. They served the master faithfully. But only because the master sought them out. Only because the master went looking for them when they were in need. Only because of the master's grace. And to work for the master, it's not a curse. It's a blessing. The work is exactly what the men were seeking in the first place, and it's what they received. So likewise with us, we are only on the inside because of God's grace. We're only on the inside because God, in his great grace, came down to earth in the person of Jesus and bled and died to make a way for us. And to serve God is a blessing. It's what we were made for. It's what you were made for. And God in his grace comes to us and he says, I see you don't have meaningful work to do. Come and work for me. Be a part of what I'm doing in the world. So we need to ask the question, what is the application of this parable? What do I need to take away from it? Well, just as Jesus is trying to help Peter realize, our relationship with God isn't transactional. We often treat God like a cosmic vending machine, as though if we obey him, he'll distribute corresponding rewards. He'll help us do well in school. He'll keep us from illness. He'll make sure that we get that big bonus at the end of the year. And church, he may give you some of those things. He often does. He is the giver of good gifts. But he may not. And if he doesn't, that mean, does not mean he isn't already pouring his blessings out on you because Men and women, boys and girls, obedience to God is its own reward. God is saying to all of us, I'm giving you the very best of what I have to offer. There's nothing, there's nothing better than the opportunity to serve me, to be a part of what I'm doing in the world, and to receive eternal life. There's nothing better than to be right next to me, the master. There is no better prize than to see what God is doing in the world and to be able to work and to be a part of it. So to get upset and bothered because of what others around us receive is to miss the point entirely. So the amazing thing about the gospel isn't that everyone, regardless of how long or how well they've served God, gets in. It's that anyone gets in at all. We don't deserve this. But we serve a God who rewards us anyway. So if you feel the Holy Spirit pressing on you this morning, I want to invite you to allow him to do his work. 
If you're feeling convicted by this passage today because of the way that you've acted towards God or towards others, then ask Jesus to open your eyes to see clearly. Church, I know that that arrogance and entitlement inside of me is ugly and wrong. And sure, I can be humble. I can pretend. I can put on a show. But inside, I know I'm still broken. And it does damage to the people around me. And no amount of my own willpower can change my broken, prideful heart. I need to come before the Father and ask him to send the Spirit to make me new. And I think perhaps some of us need to do so as well. Because you see, we already have all of the approval, all of the love, all of the blessing that we could ever want in Jesus. We just need the eyes to see it and the heart to receive it with gladness. We need to have our perspective changed and realize that what we have is a blessing beyond comparison. And you do have it, church. If you are a believer in Jesus, then he loves you deeply, profoundly. So ask him to teach you about his love, his love that can save broken people like us. Let him remind us that we were once outsiders too, far from God, bound for destruction. And let him melt our prideful hearts as we marvel at his mercy. That's what we do here on a Sunday morning. We're marveling at God's mercy, at his grace. So church, the workday is not over. God has not yet finished calling outsiders into his family. And by the way, if you, if you are outside the family of God, if you don't know his son Jesus, if you're impressed by a God who loves deeply and sacrifices much, if you recognize that by your own work you can't get to him and you want to believe in him today, you can do so. Romans chapter 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And you can do that this morning. And if you do, come and talk to one of us. We would love to pray with you and we would love to talk about what you've just done, believing in Jesus. But for the rest of us in this room, let's get back into the fields and continue to serve the master with grateful hearts. We still have work to do. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for Jesus, for his brilliant storytelling that cuts right into our hearts. And I pray, God, I pray that you would cut into my heart and to the hearts of these here. For those of us, God, who have taken your grace for granted, I pray that we would repent and that we would bow our heads before a grateful, a gracious God and be grateful for what you've given to us. That we wouldn't worry about comparing ourselves to others, God, but we would focus on you and be thankful. That we would lay down our pride. And God, you have to do that. I, I can't do that. You need to do that in me. And you need to do that in my friends. So come and minister to us. And Father, if there are any here in this room that have not yet believed in Jesus, I pray that they would. And if there are some here who have believed in Jesus for the first time and, and accepted his grace, I pray, God, that you would help us to minister to them and to welcome them into the family. 
But as we lift our hearts in praise in this moment, I pray, God, that you would be with us, that you would receive our worship, which is rightfully yours, and that you would remind us of how much you love us. God, we love because you loved us first. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.